we come to the third and final uh, section of Ezra Nehemiah, the section that we have headed, it falls naturally actually into the heading in scripture, the third return under Nehemiah. This whole part of Ezra Nehemiah, the book that we call the book of, of Nehemiah, but in actual fact the second part of this work, uh, is completely taken up with the third return. This is very interesting because there, in this particular party under Nehemiah, there were not very many that did return. It was the smallest of the groups that would return. We do not actually know the number, but it would have been quite a small uh, selected, selective group. But we have this whole book of Nehemiah that uh, covers the third stage of the return to the land. And before we actually look at this uh, third stage of the return, we need, to, if we're going to understand anything at all, to ask ourselves what the walls are. What do the walls really mean? Uh, it is perfectly clear that the third stage of the return are nearly, well, it is wholly to do with the walls of Jerusalem. This book of Nehemiah is completely taken up with the walls. The first seven chapters of Nehemiah are, ex are exclusively dealing with the walls. First of all, you get the burden about the walls. Then you get Nehemiah going to review the walls. Then after the review of the walls, you, you get the commencement of the actual building of the walls. Then you get the conflict over the walls. And then at last you get the completion of the walls. That's found within the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Then, in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, you have the dedication of the walls. So that the book, this book of Nehemiah, this, this part of the Ezra Nehemiah, is taken up completely with the walls. The chapters, even the other chapters, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, are really, in some way, connected with the walls. Uh, the walls are not actually mentioned in those chapters, but they are bounded by the dedication. It is very interesting that the dedication of the walls should come so late uh, in the record, so that we have other matters before. Then, of course, the last chapter, chapter 13, uh, is to do with the uh, final uh, clearing up of one or two matters uh, in the uh, city. So we can see straight away that the, this part of this work of the chronicler is all to do with the wolf. In the first return, we found that we were dealing with the house of God. We were dealing with the house of God in every aspect of it. Its ground, its foundation, its structure, the way that it is produced, the cross, and so on. In the first stage of the return, every single aspect of the house of God from the actual ground that must be returned to, to the foundation that's got to be laid, to the altar that must pre precede even the foundation, to the structure that at last is completed after much conflict. Everything to do in that first return under the rubble and Jeshua is to do with the house of God. 
Under the second return that we dealt with last week, everything to do with inward moral character. First, God would have us put the question of the recovery of truth in practice first. Then when we have got that clear and we return to certain ground and we understand something of God's purpose, then the Holy Spirit gets down to this business of inward spiritual character. Evangelical Christianity has inverted the order and put first inward spiritual character and then these other things. But it is clear from the Word of God that the first thing is the ground and then uh, the foundation, the, the altar and the foundation. And then the next thing that is recovered in this threefold recovery, restoration of the people of God to the land, is inward spiritual character. Now, having established this, that having on the one side gone back to certain grounds, and having seen something of God's purpose and his uh, goal, and having seen also the very real necessity of spiritual character going hand in hand with the other, now we come to this question of the wall. The third return is the more remarkable because it is all to do with the walls when so much of the actual city has not been rebuilt. This simply means that the walls were completed before the actual buildings within the city were completed. Now, do take note of that order. First, God gets a group going back, a largest group going back, but still a remnant, and they build, they first erect the altar on that ground, and then they build the house of God on that ground. Then the next real thing is, of course, a question of spiritual character, the spiritual character of the people. And then the third and final stage in recovery is the walls, the walls of the city. That's most interesting, really, when we really note something of that order. When we come to this stage, the third uh, part of the return, we come to that which is much fuller than the other two. Uh, the other two, uh, of course, were dealing with, as we have already said, uh, very, very important and vital matters. But when we come to the walls, we come to something which is an expansion of anything that has preceded. The walls gather up everything that has been recovered. The Hebrew word for walls is simply enclosure. That which encloses. And the walls enclose everything which has now been recovered and restored. It is the fullest stage of the recovery, as we would expect, being the last. It encloses, first of all, a city. And at the heart of that city, there is the temple. These walls then enclose that. In actual fact, much of the city itself was rebuilt after the wall. But the point is that the walls enclosed the city. And at the heart of that city, there is the dwelling place of God. That may give us some idea when we come to ask ourselves the question, what do the walls really symbolize? If the Holy Spirit takes up so much time upon this question of the walls, what do they really symbolize?
recognizing that these walls enclose, first of all, certain grounds. That's very clear, I trust, to everyone. These walls are built on the perimeter of a certain ground which is called Jerusalem. Everything within those walls is Jerusalem. And everything outside of those walls is not Jerusalem. Those walls, therefore, first of all, enclose a certain ground. They are put there as a permanent boundary of ground which God has chosen to cause his name to dwell there. Those walls are a permanent, solid, clear boundary. That is the master. The walls enclose certain ground which God has chosen out of all the localities of the promised land, out of everything that he could have chosen, he chose the place called Jerusalem to cause his name to dwell there. That was to be the place of his dwelling. Secondly, it encloses the temple. It not only encloses ground bigger than the temple, but it actually encloses the house of God upon that ground. Within those walls, not outside of those walls, but within those walls is the very dwelling place of God on earth. In under the old covenant, this was the actual spot in the whole inhabited earth where God literally dwelt. He was found of his people there. And thirdly, these walls enclosed a city which was to become a center of authority and of government and of administration. We recognize all that as being enclosed by the walls of Jerusalem. And we see, therefore, that there are three things that we can say about the walls. What do they symbolize? We can say first, obviously there is definition. The walls symbolize definition. They define something. They define something abundantly clearly. They put a boundary between what is not God's ground and what is God's ground. They define where God can be found and where he can't be found. They define a place of authority. There is no other place that God has chosen to be the center of government and authority and administration in his land. This is the place from which God said he would rule the earth. Those walls then define something. So the first thing we say about walls, and of course this is true of any wall, the wall in the garden, apart from anything else, is a definition. It defines ground which belongs to us. Uh, it's on the boundaries. It defines something. Secondly, that wall is a wall of separation. This, of course, is linked very closely with definition. But it is a wall that does divide. It ensures a, a purity. That's the point. What is within those enclosed walls was kept, as it were, enclosed. It was guarded. It was separate. It couldn't just go on growing and growing and growing and rambling out. Those walls, and particularly in the days of which we're speaking, meant that safety to everyone inside. They separated a certain city. They separated a certain place. Separation. It speaks, therefore, of separation. Wars in the scripture always speak of separation. You remember 
just um, uh, going to one aside for one moment, uh, you remember in the Song of Solomon, it speaks of, of the church being a walled garden. Always walls speak of this separation, uh, this not only something defined, but something separate. You see, Jerusalem, and by the way, there are very few other walls really taken up in the way that the walls of Jerusalem are, to the very end of the Bible. In the very last chapters of the Bible, there's a lot about the walls of the new Jerusalem. They speak of something which is separate unto God. Even if we believe that there will be a kingdom of God, and there will be nations in that kingdom, we see that the city of God is something peculiarly first fruits unto God. Very interesting later on, as we shall see in the 11th chapter of Nehemiah, that it was a tenth of the nation that dwelt within those walls. Only a tenth. And those who freely offered themselves, well, there weren't very many of them. But a tenth were taken, one in ten. What does this mean? It just means first fruits. You see? Jerusalem is first fruits unto God. It is something peculiarly separate unto God. And then we not only see that, but we see these walls speak of preservation. Definition, separation, preservation. Walls in the old days preserved the it preserves the character. Even today, some of you uh, now and again go to Patsy City, there's not many left in this country, this wall. And we still see a little that has been preserved because of the wall. Wherever you find walls completely intact, you usually find a certain atmosphere preserved within those walls. These walls stand for preservation. The conservation of something. The preservation of something uh, that God has given. Yes, you can say it's protection. Uh, it's being guarded, but better still, concert. Here is a place that, in which everything is concerned. Uh, John Newton knew a good deal more than many of us today when he said, Saviour is of Zion City, I feel great, and then Bram. And then he went on to speak about Holy joy and lasting than the lion's children. It is within these walls, you see, that something is conserved and preserved, which is lost elsewhere. So, <clears throat> when we come to this question of the wall, if we take these three things, definition, separation, preservation, we can sum it all up in one word, testimony. This word testimony sums up. Something defined. It's a testimony to something clearly defined. It is a testimony of something separate. Of altogether different order. Something essentially different to any other city in the earth. And then it speaks of something which is eternal. Something which enjoys the guardianship of God. It enjoys the actual personal care uh, of the Lord. So, really, what do these walls really symbolize? They symbolize the testimony of Jesus. What we come to know in the New Testament is the testimony of Jesus. These walls are but the symbol of that. And all that that means. We ask ourselves, what is the testimony of Jesus? 
If you want to know what the testimony of Jesus is, you must read the book of Revelation. And there you will find something of the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? Is the testimony of Jesus just ministry? Is the testimony of Jesus just work? Is the testimony of Jesus just, and I must be careful, a life? The testimony of Jesus, we are told, in Scripture, is symbolized by a golden lampstand. And this golden lampstand is the church. The testimony of Jesus is intimately bound up with the churches. And that's why the book of Revelation begins with the seven churches, seven golden lampstands, in the midst of which the Lord himself walks. At the end of the book of Revelation, you have the seven churches have given way to the one city. No more are the churches mentioned. Only now there remains a city. This city is called the lampstand of the nation. It, it contains the glory of God. It is the light of the universe. There's no need of sun, no need of the moon, no need of anything else that we call light. It is itself the light, the eternal light of the universe. What was at the beginning of the book linked with companies on earth in different localities now has been transformed into something which is eternal, which has eternal vocation, and which is going to last throughout eternity. That's the testimony of Jesus. And the book of Revelation corresponds in many ways to Ezra and Nehemiah in the sense that it depicts and seeks to portray the terrible conflict raging over the testimony of Jesus from the day of Pentecost down through to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The mortal conflict of Satan to destroy those that hold the testimony of Jesus and to overthrow, to compromise. How can he compromise? By getting right at the essential nature of that testimony. That testimony is linked with the church of God expressed on earth. You can have all the Christian work in the world that you want. You can have all the Christian experience in the world that you can, that you can muster. But if you haven't got the church of God expressed in the earth, you cannot have the testimony of Jesus. The lampstand is not associated with ones and twos here and there on any kind of ground, in any kind of thing. It is associated with those that have taken a certain ground and are found on a certain foundation by the deep working of the cross. They have been loosed from their sins in his blood. They have overcome the devil by his blood, by the word of the testament, loving not their lives unto the death. These are people, you see, who have held from the beginning to the end to a certain truth, to certain truth. I hesitate to use that word, but you understand what I mean. When I say certain truth, I really mean the testimony. The book of Revelation is the record of those who in every age have held the testimony of Jesus and what it has meant. They have met the full glass of the end. So <clears throat> these walls symbolize what? The testimony of Jesus. 
and therefore they are of the most vital, vital importance to us. For <clears throat> Nehemiah does not speak just of the testimony of Jesus. He speaks, he symbolizes, he as it were portrays or foreshadows the uh, recovery of the testimony of Jesus. There are hardly any real Bible scholars who will not agree with the testimony of Jesus. Doesn't matter what denomination or where you find, they all agree the testimony of Jesus. And so we're faced in the end days of the New Testament age with this whole question of the recovery of the testimony of Jesus. Now then, now let's get back to Nehemiah. These walls gather up all that is preceded. They are, as it were, the last stage in a recovery. The first stage was the house of God. The second stage was inward character. The third stage was It is not just the house of God as the dwelling place of God, but it is the city of God. That is, as it were, the church of God as something that is absolutely in the place of authority and government. That's the thing that these walls speak of. They speak of the conservation of all that has been covered in stores. Well, we've said that about the walls, because otherwise we won't understand what we're talking about when we come to talk, uh, come to see through these chapters, all about the walls uh, of Jerusalem. One other little point, Nehemiah comes in. Another word, Mark the Nehemiah. I can't, we can't spend time tonight speaking about Nehemiah, but he was unremarkable. One of the loveliest characters, I think, in the Old Testament, when you really look at him, there's something very lovely about his words, very lovely about his character that God had walked upon. Uh, there's something very appealing uh, about Nehemiah. This also is the period of the prophecy and ministry of Malachi. We don't know how much Malachi is responsible for this part of the recovery. As Haggai and Zechariah in the first stage of the recovery were so greatly used of God to complete it, to bring about completion, so it well may, may, may well have been that Malachi was used of God here to, uh, to bring about the completion of these things. Now, if you turn to this book of Nehemiah, in chapter 1, what are the principles that we find here? There are five clear principles in these chapters, in these 13 chapters. The first is this, and by the way, I'm not going to refer a lot now to what has preceded, but in your minds, I trust you will all the time be bearing in mind all that preceded in the first and the second stage of the recovery. Because the testimony of Jesus, of course, is that. It is that. The first thing we find in chapter 1 to verse 18 of chapter 2 is this. Holding the testimony of Jesus 
is a deeply inwrought matter. It requires a deep inwrought experience if there's going to be any recovery of the testimony and any holding of the testimony. Now just look at this man. You take chapter 1 of Nehemiah and you just look at it. The first thing you find is a spirit of concern. There is a spirit of concern and exercise. This is nothing cheap here. It's not ambition. It's not ministry. It's not position. It's not just himself. This man has a spirit of concern. Although he occupies a very high position in the court, as soon as one of his close associates comes from the promised land, he asks them about the, the city. What happens? There's a spirit of real concern for the people of God. He is living actually in exile, but his heart is in the land. His heart is where God's dwelling place is. And he has a concern for it. Oh, here's a, a spirit of concern. Nothing cheap. Nothing cheap. Nothing superficial. Nothing shallow. A spirit of real concern. And then you'll see straight on from that, in that chapter, there's a spirit of brokenness and travail. The reaction of Nehemiah is not just an emotional one. It is the reaction of an educated, cultured, refined man who is in deep travail of spirit. Not just sentimentality. As soon as he hears the news, the affliction of the people of God and the breaking down of those walls, it says he wept. Now the trouble with so many of us is this, that when we hear of that which should not be, we rejoice. Or, at the very least, we just talk with gossip. Instead of a spirit of concern that would bring about tears, here there is a spirit of brokenness and travail. If you read the prayer of Nehemiah, it's a tremendous prayer. It bubbles out of the depths of this man. He can't contain it. He can't keep it in. This man is so deeply involved with God's purpose. They hold him the testimony of Jesus is really something that goes right down to our spirit. Now I wonder whether any of you have ever wept over the work of God. This you can do. I don't mean outwardly necessarily, but in the certainly. Any of you ever really wept over the work of God, over the interests of God, over the purpose? Because many of us wept over our own need. Spend a lot of time weeping about ourselves. Whether we're loved or not loved, whether we're wanted or not wanted, whether we're cared for or not cared for, all the rest of it. I wonder if any of us have really ever had such a spirit of concern, such a spirit of exercise, such a spirit of humility and brokenness that draws out prayer. You see, you can't force prayer out. Prayer comes out. He can't keep it in. This man is in such agony that the only way he can do it is let it out in prayer. Have you ever been like that? Where there's only one way out, and that's prayer. You've got to pray. Otherwise you, you feel well, you just can't contain yourself any longer. You've got to pray about it. This man evidently was not usually of a sad countenance, and the king very quickly noticed it, and in those days it put a man to lose his head if his countenance wasn't uh, um, happy. And he feared for his life when the king said to him, What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? You're not sick. And yet your countenance has changed. Not something desperately wrong with you. And this reveals the next thing. This man 
is utterly dependent upon the Lord. Do you know, before ever he answered the king, he said, I prayed for the Lord. He only had a minute, you know. He didn't bow his head and get on his knees. Uh, he just in his heart. That reveals a spirit of dependence. And then you see there is what we could call action. Prayer and action. He asks for something. He takes his life in his hand and tells the king exactly what he's said. The result is that he's made a governor. He's given a very big uh, uh, sum of money and he's sent it back to the land. And I want also, fourthly, just to add this. If we are going to hold the testimony of Jesus or be any part to its recovery, we have got to have such an experience as this, a deeply inward experience of concern, of travel, of brokenness. Now, I don't wish to dwell much upon it, but you know, when a person's in travel, they know nothing else but that travel. It consumes. And so it is in this. If we are going to be in this, it's going to be a, a thing that's going to take us completely. A spirit of dependence. And I also want to add this, a practical knowledge of the, uh, and an understanding of the ruin. I love the way that when uh, Nehemiah went back to the city, he went out by night. He went out on a donkey by night and went right round the walls of the city. He viewed them. Now, this is just what many Christians will not do. A lot of trouble comes from it. They think that it's being very critical to look at the ruins. If you clearly see the ruins and can say what the ruins are, you're, there's something wrong with your sanctity. Or you're lacking in love. But the whole point is this. A surgeon has got to know what's wrong before he can operate. Before ever you can restore a building, you've got to know the extent of the wrong. We came to this place, we couldn't just uh, pretend that it didn't exist. But to find out where it was and look at it and take in its full extent. I remember the horror of it. And we realized we had to take in the full extent just how far it had gone and sit down and recognize it was going to be a costly business. Now, this is exactly what there's got to be in all of us if there's going to be any recovery of the testimony. We've got to look at the state of things, we've got to review the room, we've got to see the rock. We've got to see the rubbish. We've got to see where it lies, what can be done about it. The first step in recovery is an understanding of the room. Of course, I don't mean uh, these people that can throw their weight around, that can just, as it were, knock everyone about and so on. That's not a spirit, you see, of brokenness and travail or dependence. When the Lord gets your spirit of brokenness and travail and dependence in us, then he can show us the ruin. First he gets Nehemiah crying. Then he shows him the ruins. When he gets that order, Nehemiah is safe. He won't throw his weight around. He can see the ruins, understand it, and in the hands of God can be used to do something about it. God would have us like that. People in his hands who can view the state of things today in Christian circles and have the courage to define what's wrong. That's the thing that's needed. It needs courage to define what's wrong. It needs courage to see the rubbish. And it is rubbish. That locks up, blocks up 
everywhere. But we need the courage, and we need the understanding and knowledge of such a thing before there can be any kind of recovery at all. Then if you move on, you will find another wonderful principle. Are we going to hold the testimony of Jesus? Well, we're going to have to have an experience like that. And that will take us some deep ways. But the second principle is found in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And it is the necessity of fellowship and of harmony and of relatedness of function in the recovery of the testimony. Now, here there are some wonderful things if you've read these chapters. Of course, we can't go reading them all now, but uh, really, you must read them, if you haven't read them, to get an understanding of what I'm going to say. Look at the harmony here. Look at the fellowship here. We really had a map of the walls we could see. We tried to get them, we couldn't get a map of the walls. Could see right through that. Here was this man and his group. Here next to him was another man and his group. Then next to him was another man and his group. Next to him is another man in history. Next to him is another man in history. And next to him is another man in history. And then there's a leader to each section, from gate to gate, you see, over different groups. And then there's another leader over so many subsidiary groups. And the whole thing is, the, is a marvel of the division of labor, all divided up carefully, right the way round the whole world, so that the walls go up slowly and together. Now, there are some wonderful things here if you read through these. these perhaps some of you find it a little bit much to read through all this, this long name and so and so and so many and, and the sheep gate and the horse gate and the dung gate and the fish gate and all the rest of it. But you read through it and what do you find? You find here are And then here there are perfumes. And then here there are merchants. And here there are quite a gang of ordinary people. And so you go all the way around. You find the priests, you find the Levites, you find the rulers. And then you even find one noble man and his very aristocratic daughters working on one of the gates. And it's recorded very carefully, you see. Well, why is all this recorded so carefully? Because it revealed a marvel of interrelatedness. No one cared two hoops for their position. They might be the most aristocratic or the poorest person. They might be wealthy. Or they might be poverty-stricken, but they all came in together. No one stood on their position. No one took uh, knowledge of their class. Everyone came together. In the recovery of the testimony, that's exactly how it must be. No social barriers, no other barriers. Everyone is equal in the sight of God. Everyone has a place on those walls. Everyone has to work beside each other. And it's not very easy. I have no doubt at all that those aristocratic daughters of that noble man did not find it easy to be put beside some peasant people who probably were very cruel uh, and uh, not exactly understanding times. I don't know. But I have no doubt at all that there were a lot of troubles on those walls uh, if you could have gone all the way round between all the different people. You see, they were all so different. Can you imagine? Nehemiah says of one, one lot, they didn't put their shoulders to the work. The nobles of Tekoa did not put their shoulders to the work. They evidently felt it was a bit beneath their dignity to so do. But you see, this is a principle. It is a principle in the recovery of the testimony. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you are, how much money you've got, or how much you haven't got. The point is this, God requires you in the recovery of the testimony. And he will put us all together in this business. 
all the different functions, all the different positions, all the different ministries, they're all there in this work of recovery. That's one thing that I wanted to say. And then I want you also to note this, that each one is mentioned. Each group is mentioned. It doesn't matter who they are or what they are. And I'm very glad to see that the rulers are given no bigger place than the ordinary people. Everyone's the same. And the priests aren't given a bigger place. Or the Levites than the rest. All are given the same place as far as mentioning goes. All are mentioned. This reveals that every part of those walls is as important to the completion of the walls. It's very, very easy to think that the fish gate might be more important uh, than a part of the wall, uh, an in-between part of the wall. But in actual fact, one single breach in the wall, and it was the end of the safety of the wall. There's another way. There must not be a weakness anywhere in those walls. Now this is the testimony of Jesus. You might be the most humble person as far as job and background goes. But you are so necessary. You may feel so useless. People don't wonder what do I do? What do I mean? I'm so young. I'm so small. I haven't got any, many spiritual riches and the rest of it. But you see, you and I, we are valuable in this business. We have a part to play in the recovery. I noticed another thing, that when some of them finished a little earlier than others, they were rededicated to help finish the others. So that's a rather lovely thought, isn't it? That when some got ahead of the others and finished their portion, they were, it said, they were given another portion to do, if you read through this list very carefully. And then I want you also to note in the, at the end of chapter 4, <coughs> from roughly verse 7 to verse 23, um, that this question of fellowship and relatedness of function in the recovery of the testimony goes right down to this question of vigilance and to fellowship in vigilance and togetherness in defense. Oh, I do wish we could all understand this simple lesson. You know, this is just what the devil gets us all knocked down. All six Here you've got a tremendous work going on in the recovery, see? It's all starting, it's working, as it were. The, 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 the uh, stones are going into their place, slowly the wall's going up, and then what starts to happen? Well, of course, so-and-so falls out with so-and-so. Um, we can just imagine it. As I said, these aristocratic ladies, perhaps they just didn't like the people who were next to them. They just began to draw out the work altogether. Difficulties ensued, arguments, collisions, all the rest of it. It couldn't happen. And Nehemiah had to continually go around getting everyone together all the time. He said, if we've got to have a fellowship of vigilance, everyone's got to watch over everyone else. You all, those of you who are on duty, half of you are on duty, half are off on guard. And then when you are on duty, many of them had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. You've all got to guard one another. Everyone's got to watch. And he said, as the walls are rather big, if we see the enemy attacking over there, the trumpet will be blown and every man focus his attention on that part of the wall. No time for personal difficulties. No time for personal collisions. No time for the little squabbles that go on and ruin it is the little foxes that spoil the land. These little things. No time for that. It's got to be a fellowship of vigilance, or a vigilant fellowship. All watching over each other. All helping one another. All covering each other. You see... Oh, what do we do? Many of us are using our swords on one another. 
You've got a trowel in one hand and a sword to dig the next person well and true. When we get fed up with them. And that's what's going on in the work all the time. Uh, this, these little sort of squabbles between people. What they're using the sword, they're using their weapons uh, for the wrong thing. Now we need this fellowship of vigilance, this togetherness and defense. What a tremendous thing to do. You know as well as I do that one of the first things the enemy seeks to do, that's why he has such a huge intelligence network, is to sow disruption in the war. They try to do it in the factories, they try to do it in the homes. Just sow disruption. They, morale is one of the greatest factors in war. All of them, sure. Morale. Smash up the morale and the fighting men can go on fighting. You smashed up the morale at home and it's gone. All on those men will get letters and many other things and they'll the hold it. And this is always the devil's weapon. Try and get the morale of the people of God ruined and destroyed. And he does it by people seeing faults in each other and all the rest of it, you see, and colliding and, and not covering each other and so it goes on. Um, then, of course, when the trumpets blow, everyone's so busy um, fighting each other, or so sort of full of despondence and despair, they say, oh, let the trumpet blow, I couldn't blow it So, you see, this is the need. Necessity, fellowship, and relatedness of function and covering this testimony. You and I have a part to play with God has called us to work in such a company that's returned. We have a part to play in. And this part play, never underestimate your part. Never. You may seem very small, but it's a tremendous part. And you might be the very one if you let go, the breaching the wall. There you are. And then I want you also to note, too, the third thing in this whole question of the recovery of the testimony is conflict and triumph in the recovery of, this, of the testimony. And this is spread over quite a few chapters in chapter 2, in 19 and first 19 and 20, and then from 4 right over to the end of chapter 6. You have this conflict. I'm dealing with it all, as it were, together, because I think it will help you to understand. This conflict began with the commencement of the walls. It began with the commencement of the walls. And then it slowly went right on until the completion of the walls. It was a tremendous conflict. If we could only just see something of the nature of this conflict, we would be amazed. The three leaders of this, of the antagonism, of the opposition, were a man called Sanballat, the Horonite, another man called Tobiah, the Ammonite, and the other man called Geshem, or Gashmu, the Arabian. Now let's just take one small look at these three men. If you look into this book of Nehemiah, you will be very, very interested to discover something about the background of these three. At least two of them were more clear. Take, for instance, Sanballat. Sanballat, as far as we know, was a very, very influential man indeed. He later became governor of Samaria. And indeed, Jewish tradition tells us that he built a temple. This is very interesting. He built a Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. It's interesting. And then he not only did that, but he was a Moabite. Now, you all know that a Moabite, Moabites were descendants of Lot. You remember Lot, when he was drunk, uh, had a child by his own daughter, two twins. One was the father of the Moabites, the other was the father of the Ammonites. Uh, Sambalat was a Moabite from Horonim, or Horonite, 
But it goes deeper than this. This Sambala, if you read very carefully Nehemiah in chapter 13 and verse 28, you will find that Sambala's daughter married the high priest's grandson. So there wasn't a lie. So it's not quite so simple as you would think. This man, Sambalat, was related to the high priest of all people, which didn't make it very easy for Nehemiah. His daughter married the grandson of the high priest. That just shows you the the mix-up there. A very, very influential man, Sambalat. He had a standing army. If you look in, you'll see that he speaks to one point of his army and uh, rousing up the people in Samaria. A very interesting man. Then Tobiah. Who's Tobiah? Well, if you look at Tobiah, his name means the Lord is good. Jehovah is good. That's his name. So ever play, he's got some very close associations with the Lord's people. But he's an Ammonite. Another one of the descendants of Lot. That's very interesting, isn't it? And uh, if we look in, we find that Tobiah is very, very popular. He's not just influential or powerful. He's popular. Many of the noblemen, the aristocrats uh, at Jerusalem and so on, had a very real affinity to Tobiah. At one point, Tobiah lived in the temple. He actually lived. A little father always will find that Nehemiah turns him out. He was living in one of the chambers of the house of God. That shows you that this man was absolutely in the inner circle of the leaders of the nation. Tobiah. Again, I'm afraid to say that he was... uh, Related to nearly everyone, as we said, we find in one place that the it says that the uh, high priest had uh, an alliance with Tobiah. We none of us know what the alliance is, but it's very interesting to see that he had a son that married uh, a, a Jewish girl and uh, the vice versa, and he had married a Jewish woman. So now you see two leaders of the opposition. The third is a man called Geshem or Gashem. Evidently, we don't, we don't know so much about this man, but he's evidently very influential because when Sam Ballot writes, he says, and Gashman says it. Yeah. Now, evidently, what Gashman says is very, very important. Gashman, Gashman is an Arabian, and the Arabians are the descendants of the Edomites. That is, their father was Esau. So now we have a most interesting thing. We have an opposition that all find their origins somewhere amongst the people of God. And they are all, not only so, but they are all woven into the people of God. They've either got uh, Jewish wives or Jewish sons-in-law or Jewish daughters-in-law and so on. But they're all very closely related to the people of God. Now, get that in the background and now let's look. First of all, we'll look through this quite swiftly. First of all, if you look at chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, we have the first great attempt to stop the war. This time, if you find in chapter 2, 19 and 20, it says the three of them, Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? The first attempt was laughter. They laughed. And there's nothing so hard as laughter to bear. Nothing. When people see, you see, can you imagine it? Here was the man. Here was this handful, really and here are these strong people round about, already planted in the land. As far as they were concerned, the land was theirs, not Nehemiah's and his company. And of course, the first thing they said, oh dear, they just made it a joke. Goodness gracious me, what stupid people they think. Who wouldn't they? 
you know, that kind of laughter, you know, who do they think they are? Do they really think that they, that, that little group, they think they've got something, they think, they, they think they've seen something, well, surely if they've seen something, we'd have all seen it. How come they've seen it and we haven't seen it? See? That kind of laughter and derision. Score, score. That's a terrible thing to put up with. One of the hardest things to put up with is that kind of score. Well, that's how it began. A very small way, this opposition. It always does. Opposition always begins with score. It usually begins just like that. You see, people heaping score. Oh, who's that? 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 Nehemiah's reaction is very, very wonderful. He said, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But she had no portion. That's the reaction. Well, of course, that set the tone. Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem are now enemies. I have no doubt about it, but if the uh, old Nehemiah opened his arms wide, he said, Come on, boys, come and help. Thing. You know, let's all be friends together. Uh, it would have made the greatest difference in the world. So you have no portion of You've not got the pedigree. You haven't got the history. You haven't seen it. You can't. It's going to cause trouble. Cause trouble in the end if you can. That meant they were enemies. And very soon we find the next great attempt. It's a little farther on in chapter 4. Uh, and we find it from verse 1 to 6. Now it's anger on score this time. When they heard that the walls had begun, they were angry. And uh, we find slightly different language takes that they talk about what are these feeble Jews doing. And then will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? And then Tobiah adds his little piece and says, even a fox could push down their stone wall. You know, that kind of talk. Because they're angry now. Something's happening. And then they know it. Something's happening. But uh, they pour scorn on it. Just give them time. Just give them time. Don't collapse. And you find Nehemiah's reaction from four to six is one of dependence. He turns to the Lord. He won't answer them. Now, this is the point we've got to notice. Nehemiah refuses to take on these things. He won't answer them. He only answers the minimum when he has to. He always turns to the Lord. And he pours it all out to the Lord. He says, now, Lord, you listen to that. Yes. You know what they say? Saying a fox can push down this wall. And then you go on to the third great attempt from verse 7 to 14. Now it's definite antagonism and action. Now, what does Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem do? They decide that they are going to, uh, by means of an insidious propaganda, they are going to divide and bring about disintegration within. So they start, and they start the, the ball rolling, as it were, with all kinds of rumors. You can just imagine this. Later on, they come out into the open. Little things like, Nehemiah wants to be king. This is all for Nehemiah. It all centers in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is everything. Nehemiah wants this city for himself. Those kind of things are things that cause trouble. Because if there's any ground of help in the people, they will listen. And once they start to listen, then they... The, the ball begins to gather, the snowball begins to gather. 
But Nehemiah's reaction is one of very real very, very interesting. He arms everyone. Okay? Now he realizes that real attacks are coming. So now everyone's vigilant. If he answers by fellowship, uh, it's not just himself, uh, he seeks everyone to be together in this matter, and really quietly, not to stop the work, go right on with the work, but to be vigilant, all the time together in defense. Not stop. You see, all these attempts to stop the walls, stop the walls, anything to stop those walls from being built. We mustn't stop the walls. Then if you go on, you find that the uh, fourth opposition is from within. Now this time it's not Sandal, nor is it Tobiah. It's a tragedy. This time it's from within. I'm afraid that this wonderful harmony and fellowship has broken down, and the noble people have been buying up very swiftly the land of the poor people. What happened was this. The poor people that came in to build the walls left their land, and because of that, they hadn't any food. So they mortgaged their, uh, their land, and the rich people, with the money, started to buy up all the land they could get from their poor brothers and sisters. The result was that these people, in the end, uh, having eaten to the, to the full, found that now they had neither any money to mortgage, uh, any land to mortgage, or homes or furniture, or anything to mortgage, and no money to buy any more food. And so division came within. Nothing to do with Sandala. Right within. This time it's dishonesty and, and greed. It was selfishness inside the walls. And this again and again has brought to an end the work of God. Oh, it can happen in so many ways. Just get a company of people all centering in their own things and the work immediately stops at that point. Now, they had to be put right, and the way it was put right is very wonderful. Not only does Nehemiah take some very strong action and get all the land given back by the uh, wealthier people, but he also tells them that he himself has never taken a penny from them, and neither will he. Although he's governor and he's entitled to take quite a bit from them, he says he is not going to take any money at all from these people. That's an answer of fellowship. Real fellowship. It was the only way through. Yeah. Only way through. And then if you go on, you will find that another attempt came, and a very interesting attempt, in uh, chapter 6. This was, perhaps the most, so far, the most insidious and subtle attempt of all. Come and have a conference with us. Now, Sambalat and Geshem and Tobiah said, if you can only have a round-table conference to put all these things right, we'll all be happy. Now, you come to this little village on the plain of Ur, and there we'll have this round-table conference. But uh, Nehemiah said uh, that he was doing too great a work to come down. That was his own answer. You see, the thing that was Nehemiah was the walls. He was a discerning man. He knew very well that there was no real uh, desire, really, if though they pleaded to be persuaded, the real desire to put the thing right. He may well have known that there was no possibility of it putting right, of it being put right, because of their mixed background and pedigree in history. Wouldn't come down. Four times, four times they asked for this comfort. Four times the answer exactly the same. And then we come to the next uh, uh, attempt, and this one is a letter. Now, letters can be terrible things. And Sanballat sent a letter that was full of charges. Now, Sanballat was very clever. 
He never said that he was charging Nehemiah. These people who write letters never do. He never made the charge of himself. All he simply said was that it has been said that you want to be king, that you've appointed prophets to talk about you, and that you intend to take the kingdom for yourself. That's all. And he says, furthermore, Gashmore said it. It's been heard among the nations, he said, and Gashmore said it. So evidently, it was absolutely definite this was it. Uh, it was a very serious matter indeed. So, for the first time, Nehemiah answered the charge. He says, you think the whole thing. That's it. And he's not coming. And he makes his appeal to him for strengthening. And then, and I don't think many will perhaps quite understand this unless it's interpreted. The next attempt, the seventh attempt, was the most insidious of all. It was a very, very clever one indeed. A man who was a very good man, evidently, and had a ministry, he was a prophet, came to uh, uh, Nehemiah and said, evidently, tonight there's going to be an attempt on your life. You come with me because this man is evidently going to make a peace. You come with me and will hide in the temple. Now, Nehemiah was not a priest, not like Ezra, and he knew that it was forbidden by God for anyone except priests and Levites to enter into the tent of Israel. The attempt here was to get Nehemiah to fear for his own life, to hide in a place where they wouldn't dream of looking for him, and where they weren't, wouldn't be allowed to go, and he would be safe. But they knew very well that the moment he did that, he was finished, because he would be still there. They had their first well-grounded charge to make against him, that he had set foot within the temple of God. No man would be allowed to do that and to live. Nehemiah saw through that. And he said uh, that he wasn't the kind of man to flee. Why should such a man as I flee? So. And then he makes his appeal as the action again is to the Lord. And so it says in that chapter uh, 6 and verse 15, so the war was finished. So the war was finished. That's a conflict for you. Of course, I really love to be most impolite and interpret it all in practical terms. Uh, and uh, let get down to brass tacks in this kind of thing. But you know it's the kind of thing that's happening again and again and again whenever you've got the work of God. You can see the strategy of the enemy. I'm not blaming the people. I'm blaming the enemy. The enemy has a strategy. And he uses people like pawns in this strategy. Backwards of pawns it goes. Anything, anything, anything but one great object. Stop the work. Stop the walls from being built. Stop the completion. Stop the testimony of Jesus being recovered. Anything to stop it. Wreck the unity. Bring about disintegration. Rupture the thing. But anything to stop the walls. Nehemiah was a man apprehended of God. His one the one thing that governed him from the beginning to the end in this conflict was whatever happens, those walls are not stopping. It's interesting when you look through that you find at each point it's mentioned how far the walls were up. They were halfway up and the new big attack began. And then a little bit farther up, 
And uh, so it went on. Until at last the wars were finished and the battle wasn't over then. The last first attempt was this. Many of the nobles wrote to Tobiah, sent letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah sent letters to the nobles. And then these noble people came to Nehemiah and told of Tobiah's good deeds. Well, they may well see. Tobiah was evidently a good man. A lot of good deeds about Tobiah. Of course, I suppose it was very difficult for poor Nehemiah to sit down and hear that Tobiah was a very good man. He did this for so and so. And so on. See, he must be right. He must be right. And so it says that uh, many of these Tobias sent letters that made Nehemiah fear. As attempts to stop the walls. But there's a triumph there. You see, the walls never start. That's the point. That's the principle of the time. Now, what is the principle of this? The principle is this, that in the recovery of the testimony, we must expect the enemy to come at us from every angle. He will come at us outside. He will come at us from within. Sometimes, those of us who are the most godly and the most spiritual and the most responsible will suddenly, at some point, become the enemy's tool. Perhaps only for a moment. But so it happens. The principle is this. Never take anything on. Never. If you know in your spirit that the aim is to bring a standstill, turn these people in on themselves. Get them all talking. Get them all, as it were, centered in on what they are, what they're not, and the rest. And the walls will all start. So you don't have to worry about the walls. The principle is this. Nehemiah every time committed it to the Lord. I'm not saying that Nehemiah said every time he was right, what he did each time, he said, Lord, do you see this? See? See? I don't know, when he, when he heard about the fox pushing down the, the stone wall, he said, well, now, Lord, hear them. See? Hear what they say. He didn't say, well, a fox can't do it, Lord. He just said, you listen to the Lord. In other words, he was saying, Lord, they're taking you on. These things they say, about these kind of things, and, oh, it's going on all the time. I mean, not, not here, not necessarily in this country, but it's going on all the time. Whenever you've got anyone going back or going on or in this business, in the vanguard of recovery, you've got this stupid talk, this stupid talk. But you've got to remember that in every single move of recovery from the day of Hutt or Luther or, or whoever it is, Fox or right down to this day, every single move, score has been Derision has been heaped upon it. It's been laughed at. There's something. Who do these people think they are? What were the Methodists called? They were called Methodists, newfangled religionists. That's what they were called in the press of the day. What were the brethren? The great brethren movement, of course. Even Spurgeon said these poor hobnobbing, hobnobbing clutterbucks. Call, poor one, every move of the whole spirit until it's become too big. When it's become too big, then, of course, they all sit down and these people write history books. Then they say, of course, this was a great move of the Holy Spirit. Now, take Erasmus. Forgive this little intrusion. We're going to stop it anyway. Take Erasmus. No greater, more learned, more gentle, more gracious Christian man, and yet he heaped scorn upon Luther. Luther's greatest antagonist. And of course, a lot that Erasmus said was true about Luther. 
Oh, we shall call bishops nitzegs, Pope the Antichrist, any other things like that? Of course. As my point goes, things are really godly, more learned man. But the point is this God is in the room of the cover. Our history. Unfortunately, the recording of the message finished at this point.